0: Welcome to What Goes Around podcast. First of all, I just want to say thanks to everyone who's liked and subscribed and listened, and most importantly, told their friends. We have a whole raft of new subscribers and listeners uh, keeping us company and interacting with us on social media lately so thank you to everyone who's new and uh, also we humbly ask that if you enjoy the podcast please do tell a friend about it tweet them email them send a, a bat signal up to the sky because more listeners means um, more exposure for us and that uh, means we can make more pods and get rich and famous which is obviously the ultimate objective so thank you in advance um, today on the podcast, we kick things off by talking about music tattoos. Do you have any? Would you get one? If you were to get one, what would it be? And uh, are there any that you would have gotten as a teenager that you would have come by now to uh, entirely regret?
1: And we return to my favourite pastime, which is watching music documentaries late at night with a bottle of red wine. And this week we have got two absolute caucus. And we talk to John Carborn, the London artist who's bringing the world of music and art closer together with his amazing Dump plate project.
0: And we're joined on the podcast today by the musician, rapper, broadcaster, Polybat um Soweto Kinch, um, who talks to us about his phonographic memories. And uh, even though we told him they didn't have to be cool, his choices are all extremely cool. Eamon, shall we pod? Take my hand. Let's, Let's pod. pod. <laughs>
1: Let's take my hand. Let's run into Podland together. <laughs> frankenstein what goes around
0: well you were just telling me a moment ago about um a t-shirt that your wonderful wife lucy made for you saying no requests which is like good anytime but like i know well i know that you don't mind requests as much as a lot of you're very tolerant Um, when it comes to requests. But obviously, DJing during the pandemic, you don't want people spitting their requests for Mr Brightside in your face. Well, quite, but uh,
1: just one one little proviso there. Mm. I mean, it does actually say no requests, but underneath in brackets, it says during the pandemic. And then there's a little love heart underneath (laughs) that. So I'm not just being belligerent. I'm being health and safety conscious.
0: You are far too, far too open. And uh, you're just far too much of a nice person. Um, But it just made me think, because I wanted to talk to you about this anyway, because um, as you know, I I have a few tattoos. Do you have
1: any tattoos? No, I'm the last untattooed man in London. Certainly
0: the last one in Hackney.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's me and Daniel Lewis Tyson. I think we're the last two.
0: (laughs) That's going to be the hip thing now. I think it probably already is the hip thing to have virgin skin. Yeah. Um, But uh, I have a tattoo on my shin, I guess it is, which is an odd place for it. I kind of regret getting it there. Uh, but whatever, it's there forever now. But it says n- <laughs> no requests, no surrender. Um, I I think- see, no,
1: there's a problem. Are you, what are you going to do? You're going to karate kick it in the boxes when is they the ask? Thing.
0: I mean, I guess that's what I had visions of doing, but <laughs> I'm not that athletic, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> this is a, the last thing I saw was her boot smashing into my face <laughs> after I request ABBA, and all I could see was the tattoo.
0: <laughs> well, that would keep me safe from COVID
1: yeah um safe from anyone
0: (laughs) but yeah so i was i was curious because i i I thought that you didn't have didn't have any tattoos and i was wondering Mm. if there's any if if i mean not even hypothetically but like if if you could be persuaded ever to get a tattoo uh like a music tattoo i'm Mm. wondering because i i have a couple of music related tattoos i'm reluctant to go too kind of deep on anything.
1: I'm going to press you. <laughs> <laughs> you press
0: me. No, 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 I don't mean deep on, Well, you know, I don't I don't really... Uh, you know, they don't have a lot of meaning behind them. It's more just mm. like, I don't want to commit... This is quite weird, actually, considering what I do for a living, but, like, I don't really want to commit that hard to it. Well, now,
1: transition. this is why I don't have tattoos, because mm. without doubt, when I was, you know, um, 17, 18, uh, and, and first thinking about this sort of thing... Without doubt, I wanted band tattooed because I was just mm. utterly obsessed by music of all its sorts. Now, some of those I, I could have had, and I probably I, I could still have a David Bowie tattoo. I don't think that's ever going to change. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But much of the things that I would have liked to have had tattooed on me at, say, nineteen twenty, I don't think I'd like right now. I could imagine
0: you with a black flag tattoo on your upper arm. Oh, nothing so like you cool. Would have gone it, for.
1: No, it would have worse. I mean, things like Jeannie Loves Jezebel and The Mission, <laughs> and uh, and you what? know, Sister. Mercy and Equine the Bunnywood and stuff. I guess I, you know, it could be worse. But I know for a fact that um, my tastes were too fleeting because mm. I came close to having a couple tattoos. I think I was going to have a Bauhaus tattoo at one stage. Mm. Um, um, but my tastes are just too fleeting and also like when it changes oh my god I mean how far removed from my life I, I'd have to spend every day going oh yeah it says Jeannie loves Jezebel but who were they? Are they were these, like, these gothy glam punks in sort of 1980 something who did about one and a half albums and disappeared but I decided to wear them for life on my face
0: <laughs> My sister got her first tattoo and she got some writing in, in Hebrew. And I was like, I, I already had a couple. So I was able to warn her about what was ahead. And I was like, mm. get ready for every single man you casually meet in your everyday life to ask you what that means. And she was like, oh, just tell them to fuck off. And then we went to a restaurant <laughs> straight <laughs> after she got it done. And I think the waiter asked what it meant. And she was like, oh, it's from the Bible. It means this too shall pass. I was like, <laughs> you're mine every single day forever now. Um, but, uh, but and yes. And did you
1: know? Because there's lots of those people that get things like Chinese symbols, mm. and then find out it says "Egfu Young" much later.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, she she it was it was well researched. Although she's she's covered it up now; it's something else, um, which is the the other option that you could do. You could uh, cover up your Sisters of Mercy, Mercy tattoo mm. with a I don't know big black outline of David Bowie's face.
1: Well, funnily <laughs> enough, um, uh, one of my best friends at the time uh, was really into Zig Zig Sputnik. I, I, I know. So that's going to date well for a star. But I think actually he'd probably, I think he'd have probably been all right with still having it on him. And also it's kind of retro chic now. I, I think mm. I'd quite like a Zig Zig Sputnik tattoo mm-hmm. now. But anyway, he went in to get one of those, but the star in the triple S thing was just a little bit too much money. So instead he got a, um, a, a, a tiny sort of cartoon devil shooting a revolver with little love hearts coming out at the end in a kind of fit of peak in the tattoo. <laughs> Jesus
0: Christ! I mean, I don't understand how the logic. Oh, I can't afford to get this one. This seems like a I'll, logic me yeah. I get this.
1: <laughs> I thought about this for months and months, but I can't have that one, so I'm just going <laughs> to pick some random shit. Uh, not just random shit, but random shit that I can afford. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then, of course, he was stuck with this tattoo that he hated for mm. years and years and years. Eventually, he got uh, another friend of mine to do this beautiful geometric pattern, uh, sort of black, blocky pattern, and uh, managed to cover it all up and looks, looks dead hard now. <laughs> <That's> but um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it taught me a lesson because I thought, am I really 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 going to want to you know point to this particular band is world domination Enterprises is going to be a good bet for long-term future in the music industry <laughs> turns out no
0: yeah yeah it's an interesting point I mean I think for me with tattoos well first of all my mum was absolutely obsessive in her hatred of tattoos when we were growing up and um we would go around St Stephen's Green in Dublin and like maybe have a picnic on the grass I think I was maybe five or six and my sister was a little bit older. And you had real proper, like, like grimy, hardcore punks around mm. Dublin at that time who would gather in Siemens Green and my mum would be like, What? don't stare at them, for God's sake. <laughs> don't look at them. And I I think I just yes, they steal your soul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it planted a seed in my brain. So I was like, What? They're so cool, I can't even look at them. But it was a combination of that and early nineties MTV and yeah. then not being allowed to watch early nineties MTV planted some seed in my brain and then I started getting uh, tattooed and I, I couldn't stop. But music wise, for the same reason as you, I've been reluctant to although having said that, I guess I have a couple. I have a captain. Yeah, Captain yeah, Beefy. I've seen that one. Yeah, my wrist. I have a well, I sort of, I went to Memphis and I got an Elvis-ish one. I have TCB on my wrist, which is the tattoo he had taking care of business to do at his motorcycle oh. gang he was in. It's a little Elvis inside. And that's, um, that's,
1: I like the way, see, you were telling your sister that she'd have to explain, but you deliberately set out to have something cryptic on your arm there. But
0: Eamon, I wanted people to talk to me and <laughs> no one ever does. <laughs> no one has ever asked me what it means. Well, you should have lady. had
1: Jeannie Loves Jezebel on there. Everyone <laughs> would be asking.
0: It's still time. <laughs> But my next thing is, and I've been debating this for a while. I've wanted to get him, um, and this is because I love her, but also because it's such an iconic, um, such an iconic image. That picture mm. of, um, uh, that image of Grace Jones from uh, the Nightclubbing yeah. album, where she's got the cigarette hanging out of her mouth.
1: Too and cool for school.
0: It's so cool, and and I, you know, there's someone I know who does these very stylized portraits, and I've thought about it maybe more than I have with other tattoos. Uh, but um, as someone pointed out to me, uh, a friend of mine. If Operation U Tree is going to come down or a similar investigation is going to come down on any female musician.
1: Well, do you know, um, I read once that in her divorce settlement from was it Dolph Lundgren, mm-hmm. um, that he, one of the things he cited in the unreasonable behaviour um, petition was that she forced him to eat raw steak before and after oh, sex. Oh yes, I heard that too. <laughs> I
0: heard that
1: too. <sighs> oh wow, what a trip that must have been. I, I mean, mean yeah. you imagine these people might be a bit risque, but like, there's something like unexpected about saying Eat bloody meat <laughs> before we make love. I mean only Grace is gonna pull that one out.
0: That's true. But then like if the if if the I don't know if if the sort of focus or the paradigm on that kind of behaviour slightly changes and then you're stuck with the tattoo of this person who's still this yeah. kind of eccentric, but in other ways kind of cruel and evil things. Um, it well, might I imagine
1: be there's thing. a, you know, there must have been a few Gary Glitter fans and Morrissey mm. fans and others who, who have had this kind of uh, moment where they go, oh, I wish I hadn't done that.
0: Tons of Morrissey fans. I'd say there's uh, yeah. sad boys with Morrissey lyrics tattooed on them. <laughs> all over
1: the world yeah, they're even it's sadder really now even worse, exactly. so I have no idea well now I like I said I always knew that I was too fickle getting a tattoo while you're young for me uh, is just completely the wrong focus mm. right because you know you're going to get old your tastes are going to change your skin's going to go wrinkly you change shape all these reasons why I, I, I can't see it but getting a tattoo it's like um, heroin actually because um, doing heroin when you're young is obviously a bad thing. It's going to ruin your life. You're, gonna, you're not going to have energy to do anything else. You're always going to be busy looking for heroin and stuff. But once you get like to about 80, I'm thinking tattoos and heroin a great mix. Because, you know, who gives a fuck anymore what you look like? You know, you just do what you like. And, um, you know, nodding out in front of daytime television is basically what you're supposed to do. So go for it.
0: I love that parallel. But also... Consider the people who did heroin in their youth, got over it and now can always refer to that period of their life. And, you know, it's kind of like like a tattoo that they wear, which is like, I was so fucking hardcore. I yeah. did heroin, man. That's how yeah, I, I d- feel. That's what my tattoos say about me. It's basically like <laughs> like doing heroin.
1: To be honest, most of the people I've met who have done that are, are just full of regret.
0: <laughs> oh, <fair laughs> I'm romanticizing it. I'm not, you This, are this isn't big. my world. i'm in over my head
1: here but yeah i listen i'm going to keep my skin clean until at least about 7980, and then i'm gonna have a big picture of you on my face
0: (laughs) (laughs) i I was about to say that's too much but no i think i'd be quite flattered (laughs) go ahead Eamon Murdoch, what goes
1: around? Well, I'm glad it's my turn because I'm going to jump straight in at the hot documentary action, which did is you. what we love to talk about on the show. I saw this coming. You did, didn't you? It was in big letters. and was like, what's Eamon going to talk about this week? Uh, there's a brand new documentary on BBC4 called Rodney P.'s Jazz Funk. Mm-hmm. Eamon is going to be all over that like a rash. <laughs> yep. And I was. It was delicious. It was the best one I've seen in such a long time.
0: That's thrilling to hear because everyone had such high expectations for it. I have to admit, I haven't watched it yet. You know, I'm saving it, is, it for the weekend.
1: It's better than all the, the... Sometimes the the BBC Four, because it's kind of a house style in some of them, like all the Synth Britannia and Reggae Britannia, they all had this thing where like, it was kind of formulaic how they would tell the story and then it would be kind of about a few key artists and then at the end they'd say, and then people made money off this music and isn't that great? And they spend 15 minutes of the show telling you about, you know, how Coldplay were influenced by reggae or something, you know. And it it is completely pointless because if you're already watching that, but, you know, no one's watching that who doesn't already have a little bit of... uh, interest in that particular genre so you know to try and have to justify it at the end I always find infuriating but this one was great because Rodney P was there and he was talking to people who were there it was about it's like this podcast it was about the people involved and the fans and the sure there were musicians and that's something but they nearly all of them were talking about their fandom first how they went to clubs like crackers uh, in the afternoon to dance do you know what I mean because that's where you could do how they'd go straight guys going into heaven nightclub with the big gay nights for these jazz funk things because the music was there so they were already deeply deeply moved by the music long before most of them had made a song or joined a band or done any remixing or Djing or whatever mm. and it was just it was really refreshing to get such a a fan-heavy presentation of it all. And I also watched the same week um, uh, my good friend Welshbeard on Twitter um, recommended this marvellous thing, and you are going to love this. Um, It's on YouTube. Uh, I'll send the link out with the show notes. Um, And it's called NY77, The Coolest Year in Hell. Have you ever seen that? Oh,
0: no, but uh, that name sounds familiar. Has that been floating around Twitter the past little
1: while? I don't think it's been on British TV, but Mm. I think it might have been on satellite things. And it's definitely been on America. And it is a really brilliant, underrated documentary, uh, which ties up, as Rodney P's Jazz Funk documentary did, ties up both the political feel and the social feel uh, and the way that... We tend to think of these things in little bubbles. Do you know what I mean? Like we just go, oh, punk, yeah, yeah. 77, yeah, it was punks. Oh, yeah, disco died. It was punks. Mm-hmm. But actually, there was loads going on. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, there was still a disco scene. It was still absolutely massive. And then there was a punk scene, and that was really something as well. But then also there were other things going on, like jazz funk. Um, and you kind of, the myth that's brought up is that, oh, Everything stopped in 1976, 77, and everyone became a punk. And everything else was uncool. Disco died. That was the end of that, mm-hmm. you know, um, over. But actually, what these two documentaries showed was a side that, re- a story that's really seldom told, which is how other scenes either adapted or or came into their own during that punk period. Because what the punk period did really was break down a load of the barriers and allowed people to move into places they didn't normally go. So hip hop's kicking off in New York at the same time as punk's kicking off. And Africa Van invites all the punks and CBGBs to come down to the block parties. And so you get people like Talking Heads knocking around, the Ramones knocking around, all these different people taking in all these different influences. And it becomes this um, revolution from all sides um, and it, it's a, a much more interesting way of looking at the whole thing. And certainly in England, the story by 77 is oh, that was it. You know, <laughs> yep. we had the Sex Pistols, and then there was, then later it was Landfill Indie. Do you know what I mean? And that's <laughs> yeah. how it goes. What they don't talk about is that period in England where disco was moving away, where Northern Soul was ebbing away as well, and jazz funk came in in a rebellious way, because it um, it was gay, it was black, um, it was underground, as you like. And I was, as an old raver, I was frankly shocked by some of the scenes in Rodney P's documentary at how big those parties were. Mm. They were enormous. Thousands and thousands of people, you know. It was like a proper big rave, you know. The, and I'd very rarely seen pictures like that, and I hadn't seen, certainly, footage like they had of the inside of London clubs at the 100 Club, or there's this legendary place called Crackers, where again, and we've talked about this a bit before, it was about dancing. It was the dancers Mm. who came in, and the people would come and dance long before it was busy in the club because they loved to dance. And the footage of these guys taps off down the front doing (laughs) disco, jazz, funk, amazingness. It was wonderful. And it felt to me like both of these documentaries um, didn't just... Scrape the surface you know they thought about how music was fractured at that time and how rebelliousness was rubbing off on different subgroups mm. and so while punk tend to get the headlines especially in england the whole jazz funk scene you know it paved the way for so much that came afterwards and it was vibrant and it was a really rebellious thing and somehow no one ever talks about
0: it it's weird i mean i i i it's really nice even just hearing you talk about the 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 context of it and how big it got because I, I really noticed like when I do my daytime jazz FM shows we play a lot of jazz funk you know uh, bands like Light of the World that you, are mm. amazing that you don't really hear that much um, on the radio or, or elsewhere and those are the bands that get the biggest response from listeners all of the jazz, yeah. jazz funk stuff even things circling the edges of jazz funk will get the biggest kind of listener engagement because obviously it's just so much more resonant than people give it credit for it was much bigger than people seemed to remember like
1: you say yeah and i think um what what i, I you know I, I think the underreported parts of it are um for instance the, the, these were really underground parties but they were quite well organized you know what i mean because there would be coaches laid on people would would get together and they would club their money because they knew they could only hear this music in a few places they would just start sending their coaches and eventually they would hire the holiday chalets, you know, and that's the start of these kind of festivals you get nowadays. The soul weekenders were the ones that started that, you know, where you go to a Butlin's off season and you get every brilliant DJ and and live act that you can. Mm. Everyone parties all the weekend, has a nice chalet to sleep in, which I have to say, whoever thought of that first oh, deserves yeah. a special gong, <laughs> like a Nobel Prize.
0: So civilized. Although the sound quality in those places is should be yeah. reserved for the. Red coats. What are they called? Red coats, yellow
1: coats? Yeah, I think there's red and blue, they're like the Crips and the Bloods in LA. <laughs> <laughs> well, that
0: would make an interesting documentary.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the Ladbrooks ones are one thing, and the Butlins guys are another, <laughs> and never the Twain's. I mean, it's like West Side Story every time. Oh, man. Um, but, it, you know, it was amazing footage, amazing um, story that really hadn't been told before, because it wasn't the story of disco. Mm. You know, it wasn't the story of funk, it wasn't the story of hip hop all of those things were entwined in it. And it wasn't the story of punk, but it became very clear that without that kind of dancing subculture that jazz funk was doing and what was coming out of the gay clubs at the time, that the music being made for places like the Blitz, uh, that wouldn't have been the same either. Do you know what I mean? It it needed that dance sensibility, which certainly punk rock didn't have, you know, not maybe a few acts, maybe the slits and stuff, but on the whole... Punk rock was about, you know, smash a guitar, you know, just energy, uh, which is fine. Um, But certainly what came afterwards became quite a fusion of these things. And um, yeah, I just hats off to Rodney P and hats off to BBC Four for a brilliant documentary. And the New York 77, Coolest Year in Hell is the best thing I've seen on YouTube in a while too. I, I really strongly that. recommend it.
0: I'm watching both. I'm making, I'm making, I'm set, putting a reminder in my phone. It doesn't get much more Do-da. serious than Do-da. that. Um, so when's the, when's the jazz funk resurgence? Well, listen, I, I had a, I, I, I waited a really long time for disco rap and early rap music to come back to London so that I could throw disco rap parties. No yeah. one is interested. It never came back. Am I going to be disappointed by the lack of resurgence of uh, the jazz funk night as well. Tell me I'm not. Eamon, do something.
1: Well, no, I'm, well, this, I, I'm doing it by, you know, I play some of this stuff. <laughs> I think, I think you, you know, I, I think it's, it, it does have an image problem, I think. And I, mm-hmm. like I say, because it's underreported, I think it might be hard to to get it coming back in a big way. But then again, you know, Incognito are back now. Mm-hmm. Um, um, bad Robots, who's like an offshoot. Um, Acid Jazz are still going, do you know, they're doing totally wide radio and all that so I think there's, there's maybe hope for a bit of that. And I think it's maybe time we had a bit of funk come back into our lives. I Certainly agree. the UK is surprisingly good when you go back and look at it. You know? So I hope so. I hope so. Me, you and Karen Arthur. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we'd be banging. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, the New York one as well. One thing, other thing I'd say is it's really nicely made in the way that um, it tells the story of the whole year. And it sort of matches it up against the mayor race for New York. And at the time, New York was like in flames, you know, Mm. it was an absolute lawless place. And he had the, it starts off with these four or five candidates for the mayor race. And they're all kind of doing their different things. And, you know, at one time or another, they're all kind of in the lead. And it's a really dirty campaign. And it's all intercut with what's going on in disco, what's going on in the roots of hip hop, what's going on in the roots of punk. Mm. So, I mean, oh, just, just joy for a music fan.
0: I might have to log off and um, go on. Let's watch go. Let's go watch it. <laughs> <See
1: you later. laughs> and now, what goes around? Let's work. In this week's feature, we look into the world of art and how it rubs shoulders with the greats of music. John Carborn, a working artist from London, has put together an amazing new art piece called the Dubplate Project. The project marries up the world of art with the world of music by creating one-off dubplate pressings of some exclusive tracks. ...by a number of underground UK artists such as Gary Newman, Plastician, Omunit, Sully, the KVB and John Fox. These exclusive dub plates will be presented in bespoke boxes and only available to one careful owner... However, the course of modern art never did run smoothly, and John soon ran into trouble when the only factory that creates the lacquers needed to make a 10-inch dub plate in the world burned down in a terrible fire. Not only that, but just to add spice to things, the lockdown happened halfway through. So, this is the story of how one man's effort to get a great limited edition out to some very lucky punters saw him struggle against tremendous odds and find the very last box of 10 inch dub plate lacquers in the world.
2: Uh, my name is John Carbone, uh, I'm an artist from London and I work on different things from screen prints to uh, sculptural work to um, illustrations for the New York Times as well as uh, projects of my own like the Plate Project hand-hand plates The idea of the Plate Project was to make a set of unique one-off records that would then be uh, in the hands exclusively of the individual buyer that, that bought the, the record, the plate. I grew up a lot going to Jungle and uh, reggae sound systems and uh, things like plastic people forward and uh, there was always a great sense of excitement and uh, you know sort of tension was was strong when you could see the DJs were going to reach for dubs and they were they were going to pull an exclusive record out or a cut you know you knew that, that was probably the only place you were going to hear it and there's no other sort of sense of seeing something that's physical and unique. It's not just like having a recording of a track that just you have. It's you know it's been made. It's a thing. Even the dub plates themselves, the, the smell uh, you know, of them, it's that kind of petrol, that sweet petrol marzipan smell they have that's vinyl narcotic. So for the dub place, I wanted to make something that felt like it had been made by hand. I need to make, I need to make really, really good wooden boxes. You know, I need to make birch ply wooden boxes and they're going to be lined with cork, sanded by hand with stainless steel, sunk, you know, middles, orbital fasteners on the top so you undo it like, you know, getting out a piece of kit. Uh, I'd not seen someone goes to quite so much trouble to, to yeah. have a record. But it wasn't just a record, it was a one-off piece of work, this thing, you know, it has the artist's handprint on it, and I thought, well, the wood grain, the handprint, and the record grooves were all sort of the same, same thing. We had something that was, yeah, I felt You know, I've got a bit of an eclectic taste in in music, and that's I know this word's around, but I mean, what it was really around was British, uh, mostly British underground music, and by that I mean jungle uh, sound system reggae roots, um, and then darker sort of into the techno uh, side of things as well. But I also wanted to get a couple of the kind of classic British sort of underground pop. from the 70s and 80s a bit as well, uh, a bit of depth to the whole thing. So we've got artists like Om Unit and D Bridge. We've got really great sound system cuts from guys like ABBA Originals, uh, Dub Terror, and White Bonnet, Gary Newman, uh, John Fox, and KVB. So I'd already cut about six or seven of the records with Leon uh, for this project, when all of a sudden the TransCo factory burnt down in America, taking with it not only the stock of 10-inch dubs, but uh, the machines that make them. So midway through cutting these with Leon, boom, there's no more dub plates left. I'm ringing up Leon and he says, yeah mate, I'm, I'm, I'm off now. I'm I'm leaving Music House and uh, uh, there's no 10-inch ten, ten dubs about. So I start ringing everywhere. I start ringing America, I start ringing Germany, I start ringing different cutting houses, I start, like, emailing people, you know. All in one day I start to panic. I think, oh, you know, I've got this far with this project, I've got all these brilliant tracks from these producers and uh, I can't execute it now, you know. I've come this far and I've said to people I'm doing this and that and now I can't. I can't even get... Get the dub plates to cut the music on. Uh, anyway, ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. So I ring Henry at uh, Higher Level Mastering, HLM, and uh, he says, Yeah, he says, I've got, a, I've got a box of tens, but I don't really want people to be cutting them to keep dub plates in their houses really. you with know, you. know, I explained the project around and about to him, the idea of it about putting out these one off records for people to get, you know, exclusive records. Uh, he kind of sort of started to warm to it. He said, all right, I'll sell you the, the box that I have. I said, OK, you know. Uh, he, he came up with a, a fair price, shall we say. I plan to go down and, and meet him and cut these records. So about the same time, of course, just to spice up the whole thing. The lockdown begins.
3: Look, you yes. man, you got to watch what you do and might want to say, because everything you do, remember, Jack is watching you. Change your ways. Stop your fussing and follow the feet and the in and the backpives. You make us <laughs> look <laughs> like a burn-up in the next I We love him up,
4: Listen love his and love a brother. Keep talking to most high John, Rastafari, King Selassie. Cha!
1: Cha, 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 wah, wah, Come say, look, you
2: man, the train, there was almost no one on it, you know, I rode this train all the way for an hour and a half to Bristol with no one on it. It was a very strange feeling, I thought, am I doing the right thing? Yeah, it's funny, opening the door to him, he said, I oh. said, I'm really pleased you turned up, he goes, it's, it's quite a session, it feels like the end of the world, and these are probably some of the last dubs I'll ever cut. And uh, so we cut all the dub plates that day, and I made my way back on the train late that night.
3: Yeah, chisel freestyle, anti-plastic man on this one, anti-napper. There And tuck the guy in the buttons. Listen. Anything goes on the face get scarred. Play with knife like guitar. Feast get scarred from far. Feast get wrecked like a car. Never ever gonna have a bar. You know why I never ever saw? Boy, could I make could that ball? Bless still fly on the wall. You get me? Listen. Uh-uh. Tell them ready like steady Any boy test man get buried Black and blue eye like berry Gonna need aid like cherry Man have a brother named Sean He may cut touch your belly Long talk not necessary Pause, Pause. I'll put your on hold like secretary Gunshot shut the street to the belly. belly Cross bullets now gonna miss Get a first class in the cemetery Shizzle My boss are holy like church Open your ears like curse. Man I real top of top Now back long from the either Like balloon them get burst If you want them matter get worse, worse. Man I sense you need like nurse Let medication the boy Start ball out from murder When I get physical first When I get physical That one worse. your name slung I've no fear from a line That's real Big time, is long time, yeah, you get, get me What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back Way back, back into time That's right, name that
0: tune Get Name that tune uh <laughs> We've got a very special guest sharing his phonographic memories with us today. Like many great UK jazz artists, he's an alumni of Gary Crosby's brilliant Tomorrow's Warriors programme. He's now an award-winning and extremely prolific jazz player, composer and rapper lauded by everyone from Mose Def to Amy Winehouse. Uh, he's also an Oxford Modern History grad, a seasoned broadcaster for the BBC, Uh, an events curator uh, running musical showcases and even his own annual festival in his adopted home of Birmingham. His latest album, The Black Peril, released last year, shone a spotlight on the race riots that happened all over Britain in 1919, which were not widely spoken about uh, at the time. Honestly, there's so many more strings to his bow, but needless to say, it's with great reverence that we welcome Soweto Kinch to the podcast. Welcome, Soweto.
4: Thanks for having me. I'd be
0: intimidated by that introduction if I didn't know you were such a humble and lovely person.
4: <laughs> I often feel like I'm talking about someone else. I mean, that's probably the way I keep my, my British self-deprecating uh, <laughs> yeah. hate.
1: It's of important, you don't want to lose praise. that. You don't, yeah. lose it.
4: you don't want to lose that, exactly. Right. Then the day that I'm like, yeah, send me more, tell me more about me. <laughs> and, um, someone just give me a tap on the shoulder.
0: Um, I'd like... How is it that you have come to have so, to, to have spread yourself out in so many different directions? I mean, having the time to like study modern history at Oxford and be, become such a, an expert in, in all of that uh, and to be such an accomplished musician as well. Because like you play a lot, like you're in backing bands and stuff as well as making your own music. And it's not just music you make. It's like concept albums and like shows and stuff like that. Where do you get the time for all of this? And yet you have the time to be speaking <laughs> to us here on this podcast
4: well actually that's the thing and I meant to say I don't have the time um, we're going to have a cut this conversation <laughs> locked in now really, really short, I'm locked too late, too late.
0: I said you um, were humble, you have to live up to that
4: now <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um, I, I feel like we often in education in jazz circles compartmentalise our abilities and the way that we view the world we're sort of taught somewhere in secondary school that you better specialise, you better pick something and we go from a day in which you're doing PE and science and maths and then playing music and doing a play in the same day um, to one where you don't do any of that. And I, I think I've endeavoured to, to keep the same childlike engagement with all these different subjects that I had at school, even as an adult. Um, and also in terms of the way that I like to tell stories, I think they often involve lots of different platforms, lots of different media, um, dance theatre, things that aren't necessarily my own skill set, but I find myself wanting to tell stories with other disciplines and with other art forms. Mm. And that's probably why my albums are a bit more conceptual and wide ranging than just a bunch of songs. But I'm also thinking my next album should just be a bunch of songs about
1: nothing. <laughs> well, a little, it, little bit of
4: each.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, balance. balance. <laughs> it's going to sound good, whatever it is. I mean, is that because, you know, uh, I was just saying before, last time I spoke to you, we were talking about The Black Peril and uh, I was so ignorant about the, the subject matter that it's based around. And now it's been put in context so much more by everything that's happening in the UK and, and around the world at the moment. Um did you see all of this coming? Was it just inevitable in your eyes that this was going to happen? Or was this just uh, a subject that you just always wanted to talk about? What's the connection between what's happening now and, and you putting that album out in
4: 2019? Yeah, I think um, it's probably the, the latter of the things that you suggested that I'm constantly aware of these themes and repeating patterns through history. And that inspires me to comment. I don't necessarily know what's going to happen next. Mm. Um and in some sense, That's when I start to write the black. I oh, know, sorry. I thought <laughs> at some point I was a sage and an oracle, but I found out that I'm not really. Um, and I think, yeah, being sensitive, receptive to these repeating patterns in history is is inspired the Black Pearl as an album. Um, but there's a very big reason, and having recently travelled around the country, even during lockdown, because I'm planning to do an online festival, hashtag yeah. Black Black Pearl 2020. It makes me very aware that there's a, there's a probably a very good reason why we don't know about the nineteen nineteen riots. A very conscious attempt by people in power to present the black presence in Britain as just being a post windrush phenomenon, like yeah. reggae and jerk seasoning. Um and if you just have something as novel and foreign, then it's easy to deport it. And what I've discovered through my studies of the black pearl is this, this whole of, the whole scandal with the Windrush landing cards and black people being deported. It's certainly not the first time it's happened. We were here and settled a hundred years ago, and such was the level of official hostility that white women that chose to cross the colour line and have mixed race children and, and relationships with black men were stripped naked and beaten and paraded in the streets. Um, thousands, as many as three thousand black people who made their homes in Britain were forcibly repatriated after the First World War in 1919. And you as just, I mentioned, all these swirling never things hear about, about that, Spanish you? flu. Mm-hmm. You never hear about it. And that's certainly a reason why I'm, I'm keen to talk about it today. Mm-hmm. And not with a view necessarily to being like, if we don't, then it's going to all happen again. But as I'm looking around me, uh, I'm definitely seeing uh, the weaponization of race, immigration as ways to scapegoat the most vulnerable people for the Corona crisis and not the people in charge. So it's cautionary. There are many cautionary tales from the past.
0: Do you feel an obligation as uh, someone who makes music and creates art as well as someone who's in the media? Do you feel like it's your obligation to, to talk about this stuff? Like, do you bang your head against the That's wall? That's a great that not question. <laughs> That's actually a great more? question.
4: Um, I don't, yeah, uh, yes and no. Um, on the one hand, I resent the the obligation mm. to speak out on race matters. Mm. I really liked um, Dizzy Rascal's quite laconic yeah, reaction response to being questioned by Piazma. It's more like, why are you asking me? And by implication, you know, white people can answer questions on racism probably more eloquently because we didn't invent it. But um, at the same time, as you sort of resent being having to be a, a jazz version of Martin Luther King on the one hand, I also do feel a massive responsibility to my ancestors, to their stories that were not told, a huge responsibility, a debt um, owed to the musicians, the artists that came to Britain long before me, centuries before me, and their stories have been consciously erased. And I felt like, this isn't the first time, um, I felt like resurrecting, resuscitating their lives, their stories to breathe new life into them, but also to let subsequent generations of black Britons, working class Britons, mixed race Britons, know that they're not alone, that they exist within a context, within the continuum and within the tradition.
0: Well, let's talk about your upbringing a tiny bit then before we get to your phonographic memories, because I'm curious sure. about it. Uh, sorry, I'm completely monopolising this conversation, Eamon.
1: It's all right. Once I get a word in, it'll be great. It'll be, I'll have a really good Never. one.
0: Um, I, I just you, wanna...
1: be, you be tough cop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
4: excited.
1: I'm excited. <laughs> I'm looking
4: out
0: for this word. Oh, man. Okay. Um, I just want to... I, I guess I'm curious about, um, you know, you say that you kind of... Uh, It sounds like you realized at quite a young age that the children are are often led down in one direction and sort of um, made to choose between what their expertise are, what their skills are, what kind of career to pursue. Like, what was it about? Was it your upbringing that made you feel like you could kind of do anything or was it uh, just kind of something that's innate? Where did you get that confidence from?
4: Oh, I'd have to definitely give credit to my upbringing, my Mm -hmm. parents, both of them as artists and creatives had, I think, a different sort of take on the world to their parents' generations. Very practical: get a job, get a degree, get some employment. Um, you know, for for better or for worse. My parents have always had a precarious uh, level of economic uh, stability, mm. but I felt growing up in a household with musicians and actors and dancers that I always learned the transformative and important power of art. To be political and also to bring people together, mm. and I definitely felt that some of my more unconventional life choices might be supported. I wouldn't feel like a maverick with no with no backing. The, okay. the whole
1: uh, school system as well. It, it, it does. I mean, certainly when I was going up, it, it was trying to uh, uh, put you in a, a nice little box so they could just push you out the door. And I can remember things like the uh, you know when you see a careers, careers officer and all that sort oh, of thing, yeah. and that they, they <laughs> well, what do you want to be? Yes, well, you, that's not going to happen. So why don't you do this? Do you know, And it really was that blatant. Um, and it's interesting, I think, uh, I know a few teachers now, and they, they try and change that, that whole feeling nowadays. And you know, if you're interested in something, they'll try and find something that is in the same area of that interest. Do you know what I mean? And so so yeah. you can still pursue what you want to do, but try and do it in a practical manner. Part of the problem, I mean, you had a great advantage in that you could see that it could be done. And I think people that don't have that kind of background, um, it seems even further away. I mean, it's always an impossible dream to become an artist and things. things, but
4: I think, if I'm really honest as well, there's a a degree of... I don't know if black privilege is the right word, but growing up in Handsworth in Birmingham gave me a sort of cultural surety, a belief Mm -hmm. and a knowledge of blackness that I never felt, even though many people did question it. Um, that would be questioned. I always felt authentic in my culture. And then I went to private school where, you know, there are entitlement is sort of built into the walls and of people taking risks and trying things is something within the private and public school education system in this country that's, that's valued uh, for better or for worse. And so I feel like there was no lane created for me. There still isn't. There isn't. It wasn't a conversation with a careers advisor that's like, yeah. you should be a rapping saxophone player. <laughs> with a See, if pop, they'd had that on my list, I'd have totally taken it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was more law. Do like do journalism.
1: Are you going to be an electrician or are you going to do work in wood?
4: Woodwork, yeah, which one? Steel, the steel factory around the corner or the car plant? Pick. Those conversations did sort of funnel people, particularly working class kids, into manual labour, Not have any, uh, in fact, I remember taking an aptitude test. I don't know if those things are still around. Oh man, and it said that my major skills were in clerical. So,
1: I'd be most to being a secretary. That's like the slyest diss. Oh, that's so cool. Do
4: you know that? It is, man. (laughs) You would make a great secretary. Oh, that's awesome. Two sugars, please. That
0: reminds me of um, when I saw, uh, after I got the the mid morning job at Jazz FM, like taking over from Chris Phillips, and I was so proud of myself. Mm -hmm. It's so green. Mm -hmm. I got free tickets to this gig around Christmas in South Bank Centre, and I took my mum. It was this artist that she really liked. And I can't remember how we got onto the subject, but uh, I just talked, I was talking about my aspirations. You know, where I wanted to go with radio and stuff. And she turned around to me. It was like, uh, would you not think about going into management? You've always been very good at admin. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: admin. <laughs> folding things. You're very good yeah. at folding. Yeah. Licking envelopes. That's you. That's your bag. It's
0: not even true, though.
4: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Again, I don't know what in my aptitude test communicated that because I'm I'm feeling pretty (laughs) terrible, clerically (laughs) speaking. That's so funny.
0: But you said you were thinking about journalism. You did work experience at The Times. Mm,
4: mm -hmm. How did that Um, work out? And BBC Pebble Mill when that was still a... Oh, I haven't that heard work. that
1: name in a long time. Yeah.
4: I know. Yeah. So, so my age. Funnily enough, I worked under Julie Etchingham and I bumped into her. I mean, she's like ITN presenter and stuff mm. now, but she was just a recent university graduate then. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I could conceive of a career where my creativity, even with my upbringing, um, could be fully realized as a proper job. Mm. Um, and I've, to some extent, had to forge my own lane. The, as I said, the black privilege has helped in having the confidence to try things out and feel that even if I fail, I'll, I'll at least have some sort of foundation underneath. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's still a challenge that we have today in society. It's, are we equipping young people to be creative and resourceful or just trying to beat them into the right-shaped cog for which part of the machine we want to slot them into afterwards?
1: Mm. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's becoming increasingly difficult to even have those little compartments and boxes that you want to put people in, because Absolutely. so many traditional industries are now essentially dying on their ass and you know, not able yeah. to continue on in the way that we've known, and uh, a lot of the uh, the future economy that we're going to build is going to require go completely new skills,
4: completely different, exactly. And I'd go as far as to say as probably the last generation, well, definitely the last generation to get a maintenance grant after mm-hmm. that, student loans came in and. Mm-hmm. The qualitative shift in the promises made to university graduates that I feel ever since it's been a conveyor belt that leads nowhere. There are lots of very talented graduates, Oxbridge graduates, all up and down the country, who just sort of migrate to London with the hope of work and if they're lucky they'll get it but there's not the same sort of guarantee that there was 30 mm. years ago 40 years yeah. ago no, that's, that's true. a societal challenge we haven't got our heads around
0: yeah it's more about being sort of scrappy and resourceful and uh you know yep. communication and networking skills yep. are the more important thing and I feel like that's kind of not necessarily acknowledged in the mainstream school system or university
1: See, I'd have done a lot better back in the day if they'd said, uh, so uh, you, you, what you need for your main skills are to be talkative to loads of people you don't really know. Swing it. And like, no how to wing you know, it. Just wing everything. Because <laughs> I'd be fine then. I'd be like, that's my job. That's yeah, what totally. I need to do.
0: Give me some kind of trick that helps me remember people's names after I've just met them.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Oh man. If totally. I could have a superpower, that would be it. Oh
0: God, yeah. Um, let's get into your phonographic memories then, because you talked about, uh, you know, blazing a trail and, and um, growing up in this unconventional environment and i can see why that would have uh, attracted you to the first um artist and the first track you've picked for your phonographic memories volunteered slavery by and roland kirk tell me about this tell us about this memory and this track
4: well um as these memories are of, of putting down to you i haven't done them chronologically so oh, apologies fine. for that <laughs> I go back and forth. that's fine but um I actually discovered this quite late in my journey as a jazz musician in about 2007, 2008. And at that point, I was just starting to research and plan out the new emancipation as an album, thinking about a year, in the year of abolition, uh, the bicentennial of the year of Britain abolishing the slave trade, which was 2007. A lot of thoughts about, well, was that really an abolition? Mm. And how was the system that was established then still with us today? Started to crystallize, and to hear Roland Kirk's inimitable, just joyous, but at the same time politically charged lyrics in this song was like, particularly the line is something we all know. Mm. Um, just felt that it would have been as understood in 1820 as it is in 2020. The idea Mm. that we voluntarily, you know, of our own volition, relinquish our faculties of criticism and give our, our labour, our free labour, up to nefarious powers, uh, really spoke to me then. Mm. And of course, his playing, his musicianship, his uncompromising attitude and all of it, mm. um, really, really yeah. spoke to me. So he's somebody who continues to inspire me, his humour, his irreverence, his direct confrontational nature at different points, all of that really spoke to me.
1: And for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar with Kirk, um, it's worth mentioning that he did all of this pretty much blind and playing about four saxophones at once and a a cuckoo whistle. Didn't he he had a
4: breathing defect? He had something wrong with his lungs. Born blind, um, just all the sort of uh, impediments that should preclude somebody from having any career in music. And yet, this guy could circular breathe for like an entire hour.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, boy, to slavery that got me on a run, run. Oh, boy, to say, got me having Oh, bothered to slavery. Oh, boy, to save Oh, bothered slavery, oh, This oh, is oh, no. I'm going to oh,
1: get out of the
3: if you want to know how it is to be free, you got to spend all day in bed with me. Oh, yeah. yeah get up, to up, get to right, Get up, right, get up. know. up, get to Get Oh, get up. Get up.
0: Get up. Get oh
1: Uh, so, just before I came on, I, I I watched the. I saw, saw a few clips on YouTube of him doing that. And uh, it's just a joyous, amazing thing to see this man, you know, like expressing himself and sending people into raptures. It, it wasn't like a. Quite often you, people imagine jazz to be sort of a quite staid thing where we all do a polite ripple of applause after the solo and blah. But this is like. Everyone jumping up, and there he is—you know, yeah. playing his three saxophones. He gets off the stage and goes for a wander into the into the crowd, like he's Ziggy Pop. You know, he comes back and finishes the song. Yep. It was—he yep. was a force of nature. It must have been. I mean, it did was. you did you see him? First, did you know about him, or did you just find the music?
4: Um, I discovered him and heard the name mentioned. I was going to mention Courtney Pine as somebody who inspired me mm-hmm. to check out Roland Kirk as well. Another prodigious. Circular breather,
1: <laughs> um, yeah. but a master.
4: yeah, I think a lot about Roland Kirk spoke to me then and, and now, um, and it, it might seem quite alien and unprecedented to go on that sort of, Pied Piper of Hamlin lap of the audience and to be able to bring an audience audience to that sort of rapture. But there's so much Black Church. I yeah. say Black Church. You know, mm. church with. African retentions that exists in Jamaica and Barbados in West Africa, and of course, in the African American community. And that's so much of what I see him channeling,
2: Mm -hmm. that
4: power. So yeah, it's it's amazing to think how much of what he did was novel, but at the same time fits within this pantheon within a much longer tradition of black musical expression.
0: That's amazing that you um, had the sax as your chosen instrument and then you sort of came to discover uh, Roland Kirk a little bit later. Is he kind of less talked about in sort of, I don't know what circles you would call it, sax playing nerd circles, you know, saxophone guys, right. horn blowers. <laughs> yeah, I
4: think it goes back to something something that Heyman was saying about the documentary, the recent mm. documentary that's uh, out on Amazon, that I think because... He'd use whistles and gimmicky mm. sort of instruments okay. and play three saxophones at once. It was hard for the intelligentsia segment of the, the jazz uh, jazz police, if you like, <laughs> to know where to to rank and file him.
1: Mm. Okay, yeah, that that go. that's what I saw on that clip for sure. Was that, that kind of um, unexpected, like unexpected joy, is the way I, I, I viewed it really. You know, he's he's out there. He didn't it. it doesn't bother him, whether it's a traditional instrument or, a, you know, a traditional line or a traditional way of saying something. It's just, he's just going to say it. He's going to say it proud, so...
4: Yeah, and it's something that, again, speaks to me in, in this moment. I think as black artists, um, I'm certainly speaking for myself, we spend a lot of time not wanting to cause offence, not wishing mm-hmm. to ruffle too many feathers um, and think that if you sort of modify your message or your music that... Then you'll be able to get the ear of the mainstream and it doesn't mm. work like that it's a terrible lie that we feed to subsequent generations mm. it's the uncompromising musicians with integrity with ethics they might not be huge successes in their lifetime but their music will will find ready furtive soil
0: mm. what's the goal do you think of that idea of being of getting the ear of the mainstream is that like fame and fortune or is it more like you know, trying to make what you're saying a bit more palatable so that more people will pick up on it and listen to it, you know, trying not to alienate people.
4: I think it's changed, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. a lot over time, but for my generation, the sort of coming-of-age period, the um X Factor, 19 Management. It's funny, one of my first gigs leaving university was playing in the pop idol big band.
0: I all, saw you know, that. <laughs> F-
4: yeah. That's how I started out in this jazz thing. Um,
1: (laughs) But it was an
4: interesting watershed moment with Big Brother on telly, Mm. a watershed moment in terms of reality TV commodifying stardom in itself. And saying, Mm. once you're famous, that's sort of an end in in and of itself and you don't need to do anything else beyond that. My aspirations have never really been that. It's been, first and foremost, to get the respect of those who I... Really fated, you know, your Winton Marsalis's and mm. Courtney Pines mm. or Steve Williamson's, just to have them hear me play a solo and be like, Yeah, yeah, kid, doing the right <laughs> stuff. <laughs> that was it. And <laughs> it, to some extent, it kind of still is. Or like, yeah,
0: but that's know. happened, hasn't it? I mean, all three of those just yeah. given me their nod of approval.
4: <laughs> yeah. And like un- avuncular chastisement from time to time. Like Branford and I have a, <laughs> a loving, you know, critique uh, where I kind of. Even though I don't think he'll ever fully understand what inspires me about hip hop or what my perspective is on it, mm. I think he forces me to clarify it, mm. and uh, it's it's a good thing. I think intergenerational dialogue about what jazz means, if it's even a useful term, is something that I'm, I'm keen to continue.
1: Yeah. Well, going back to what yeah Anne said a little bit earlier, we're uh, talking about um, the the sort of the amount of collaboration that you go into as well. Um, it seems to me that you're your art, while there's a a heavy individualism about it, because obviously, like you say, you are ploughing your own fur and you are a a, a soloist most of the time, Um, but it seems completely tied up in the history, in the community that that is in jazz music and around jazz music and and indeed other forms of entertainment as well, because bringing those different vibes together um, creates a better show and a more interesting take on it but not everyone is prepared to to work with people and to take on criticism a lot of people take on the on the pats on the back but they don't like it when they get the avuncular chastisement
4: <laughs> well, absolutely and i think that's something that makes jazz as a, as an art form unique the fact that we have to collaborate for it to be authentic we have to find a way to collectively improvise as the saying goes mm. and that involves a lot more push pull tug adjustment than if I was just programming everything in my bedroom on my own. And I guess that's one of the beauties of the modern age that I can have that yin and yang experience. I do spend a fair amount of time on my Cubase or or Able to Live, Mm. um, getting into the solitary thing as a composer and being able to layer things up. I did that particularly on Nonogram, one of my more recent albums. But when we get into the studio, you know, I have to subvert my ego to some extent. to this collective sound, and even though I'll have a some sorts of roadmap in my head at the beginning. I have to be open to arriving at a completely dis- different destination to the one that I intended at the beginning. Um, that's what makes our art form unique and beautiful, difficult, makes it really hard, but at the same time, really re- rewarding.
0: Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, trying to convince Brantford Marsalis on the the topic of hip-hop, which sort of segues nicely into your next Um, choice for phonographic memories. You've picked um, Method Man by Wu-Tang Clan. Uh Tell us about this one.
4: Oh, I mean, it's funny. Actually, After that last conversation with Bradford, he was like, look, man, I'm nearly getting 60 years old. Like, it's not, you ain't going to persuade me of nothing. (laughs) My kids, my kids be trying to persuade me of this and that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I I get that. Um, But in terms of trying to help people understand that there's an energy that's channeled through hip hop that is consistent through roots, rock, reggae, through ska, through rock and roll, through the dub poetry, through the last poets, the Watts poets, through Cab Calloway, through Louis Armstrong. And I've always been about drawing the continuum between mm. a Missy Elliott and Buster Rhymes and a Louis Armstrong and a Cab Calloway, um, rather than these, the obsession with taxonomy that we have in the West. Mm. Um, so then specifically to Method Man, which we're about about to go into. At 15, I just have this really vivid, visceral memory of going in to do my English GCSEs, in fact, all week. And for some bizarre reason, psyching myself up with this particular track, it was at a point where I'd like have to wait in the common room for a glimpse of your own (laughs) TV raps. The school that I went to was torturous in the fact that we had to go to school on Saturday as well, which was interesting. No wonder you're so smart. Um, Basically the, the yeah, extra day a week I actually wanted to go. <laughs> the only reason I wanted to go to school on Saturdays is because I get yo t v raps for like an hour uh-huh. and I try and duck lessons or sports and stuff just to be able to like watch those videos, seeing the Woo tab which you can now watch the click of a mouse uh, mm-hmm. click of a, yeah, a touchpad to see on YouTube, uh, but seeing those videos, seeing the aesthetics of Woo when they first came out the the scale the the power that they had as a group, as a movement, was so inspiring. I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to be, but I'm going to be channeling that energy in some shape or form. Hey Lizzie,
3: man. M-E-T-H-O-D, man. M-E-T-H-O-D, man. M-E-T-H-O-D, man. Hey, you, get up.
1: people became obsessed with wu-tan in a way that i hadn't seen with with other bands and acts that had come before like properly like you know they had to have all the streetwear all the you know everything i guess because they built that empire as well i
2: guess
4: long before mark zuckerberg and his ilk They were the original disruptors, you know. Mm. All the acumen within the music industry was like, look, you guys just going to need two or three maximum. Maybe get a a white girl in the group (laughs) and sell some more units. Let's go mainstream. Let's talk about gangster selling drugs and stuff like that. And they came in with esoteric samples from obscure Kung Fu movies, a whole dress code that was rooted in the streets, but yet pulling up one leg and wearing a bandana and just bizarre aesthetic choices that made you know they were unique. Every rapper had a different identity, a different style. And that was something that was right across the era as an MC that was coming up at that point. The worst thing that you could do was bite somebody's style. And if I think about some of the most influential MCs, some of them are not even massive names today. Lord Have Mercy, Buster Rhymes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Daz Effects. um you know, just the the quality of their voice. Grand Puba, that X, sometimes they sounded like cartoon characters or they sound like superheroes or they sound like great rhetoricians, you know. Everybody had to have a style. As even within the dancehall reggae of the time, Daddy Tiger, Cutty Ranks, everyone sounded different. And I felt that, that in that way I needed to find myself in the same way as saxophone players need to find their voice on their instrument. I couldn't just rhyme like anybody else. I had to be big, larger than life. And even when you hear Method Man talking about this track, it goes back. It harkens back to a, a time when you'd use nursery rhyme patterns, familiarity. You'd use yeah. motifs, things to get an audience on side. It wasn't always about your lyrical dexterity and use of multisyllabics.
1: I'm down with any track that references Dr. Seuss because uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dr. Seuss yeah. had flow. Ham and eggs. He did. He had <laughs> rhymes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was reading the, um there's a brilliant book uh, called Chamber Music about the Wu-Tang in 36 pieces by a guy called Will Ashton. And it's a really interesting uh, book because uh, unlike most kind of pop biographies, it's not really a, a sort of uh, straightforward, they got together and they met this guy and then they did this record. It's more about, um, in 36 parts, taking all the, the things that were going on sociologically in America and the world at that time and uh, their individual um, power and lack of power and how they really had a master plan and pulled it together and that the way that the Wu-Tang Clan not only came up as the band but then the way that they took hold of the business and, uh, and signed deals that allowed them specifically... Because there's a lot of them, let's not forget. There was, <laughs> no one wants to be yeah, in a nine band because you don't get paid, you know? <laughs>
4: yeah, they all had subsidiary deals with respect to record labels and playlists. Exactly. Them and, each
1: other. and that's such a game changer there because then you suddenly got not only um, them being able to record for different labels and all that kind of thing, but you got uh, the, the whole round philosophy. Everything that you couldn't squeeze into one album, there was a whole, you want to hear Method Man stuff? here you go here's a load of that well i actually then...
4: think that and again in their own words they use some of the the branding tricks and tricks of the trade that they learned in the crack business like marketing <laughs> and no literally like they decided okay we're going to brand our music like we would product and put it out on the streets it's going to have that much pull and that much draw people are going to fiend for it like they would a drug but also the awareness um of how the record industry was effectively a, a mafia, was a closed shop. Mm. And if they wanted to break into it, they'd have to adopt some of the same policies. Look, we are Wu-Tang. We control the narrative here. And if you want a piece of it, then, you know, or oh, we'll just go to Columbia. <laughs> we'll just go <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, exactly. Like, we'll just go they, to play them,
1: they, they play them all off against each other and, and retained the position of power, which is so hard for an artist to do when they're right. faced with right. the idea that there's someone there who can either give them the cheque and make the, their dreams come true or not give them the cheque, yeah. you know? Well, um, I think so- it's
4: also interesting because I was around in a group called Pentalk, we're still very much together. Today, um, MSI Asylum from, from Birmingham Elements, there were lots of comparable groups of a large size in the mid-90s, inspired by Woo but doing their own thing. And circumstances or... Um, the relative sclerosis of the UK music scene meant that we didn't have those same opportunities in the UK. So it's not just nows, it's not just sociological conditions of hardship and stuff that produced that music. Um, Being in New York was a massive thing. When I went over in 1998, I realized how accessible these music executives and so forth were, Um, but it was something that we were always on the periphery of as UK MCs until very recently. When the industries decided, oh no, maybe this has got mileage. Mm. I'd say in, until um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, in the advent of grime, even Soul Solid struggled to get a foothold that their music deserved.
0: Mm. Yeah, and they did kind of eventually. They sort of got a, a bit commercial, or they certainly released these tracks that had commercial appeal and got into the pop the, yeah. the same impact,
4: mm. the same impact as we Tank Clan. Mm. There's nine of them. They funded their own videos, all themselves. London was buzzing. The entire country was buzzing because of their music and that that sense of, like, we're going to rush the industry. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to ignore us. And, yeah, surely enough, the UK authorities shut down their potential to play any live shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. I was just
1: about to say Man. that, yeah, because they, they had it and they, they, it was all bubbling up. And then yeah. they literally got, you know, form form-filling for every single venue, and eventually they just pushed that scene and they almost got rid of it, do you know what I mean? But it was just like yeah. a stubborn thing and grew back Well, that's into just it. A, I don't and think now we it should
4: romanticise the genius of Wu-Tang. We shouldn't ignore that, but we shouldn't romanticise it without realising how much energy, how much heavy lifting, and it was always the case, is going into preventing it from happening elsewhere. Mm. Yeah.
0: I love this image of you going to school on Saturdays and trying to catch you know, MTV raps. And then you see this band, you know, you see Wu-Tang Clan and they get your attention. And instead of, you know, taking what they're doing and sort of trying to reinterpret it or copy it, you're like, oh, my God, they're doing something completely different. I'm going to do something completely different. That was yeah. the, that was the example they said. You Precisely.
4: Know. All hip hop of the time was like, you know, if I just turn up into a cypher and rap like, someone who's selling luck, just do a, a version of Snoop, I'll be laughed out of the cypher. Uh. It's like the jam session, the, the, the hip-hop cypher, the circle that everyone's emceeing and freestyling and trying out their skills. It's very much like the jam session. And if you as a saxophone player turn up just playing licks or derivative stuff that's sad and a bad impersonation of someone else, you should rightly be laughed off the bandstand.
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> Tough game, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's a tough, game. tough, tough it, game. No one,
4: no one told you to get on the stage. Like no one yeah. forced you to yeah, get in yeah, 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 the yeah. circle. You just sit down and watch. You know, if you're going to do this, then then you need to invest yourself and find out yeah, who you are. Respect to that. so, yeah. That's what's up.
0: Something completely different then with your third phonographic memory choice, a beautiful track by Don Drummond, Green Island. Talk to us about this one.
4: This really reminds me of my first times playing abroad. Mm. Um, I was really lucky to actually meet Gary Crosby for the first time when I was 13
3: Mm.
4: at a Marjorie Wiley workshop. She's a, a musicologist from Jamaica. We were just doing a, a presentation all on the folk songs and folklore of, of Jamaica. Amazing. It's African retentions. So I had this great conversation with Gary who was inspiring me, I think, yeah, it was about 14 or 15 years old at the time. Um, many years after that, when I was just leaving university, asked if I'd be happy to join Jazz Jamaica as a ah, guest amazing. saxophonist. So we got to go everywhere, it felt like. It was my first experience of properly touring with a band. My first gig abroad was in Singapore with them. Yeah. I had to room up with my homie, my brother, Harry Brown, incredible <laughs> trombonist. Incredible human being. Love that guy. And um, so we got to, to to hang out. And I think it was, that was like a coming of age in some ways as well. And mm-hmm. Green Island. Yeah, maybe because Harry plays trombone, but the particular energy of the track, it's an unusual ska beat, but it's got this sort of energy, this rough and ready energy that you can see you can imagine people in the football terraces humming along, like, out yeah. <laughs> singing along with the melody. You can also <laughs> imagine really urbane Jamaicans sitting down by the, uh, you know, the gramophone and, and sipping baby sham. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I, I always I have do. the
1: um, the football crowd problem with the uh, Harry J All-Stars with the because you can't play that in London because Chelsea fans... But you can definitely go... No 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 no, 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 In fact, I might, I might well be doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So were you, so this, how old were you when, when this, this tour kicked off?
4: Um So I'd literally just left uni in twenty twenty. 21,
1: 21. And it's yeah, because yeah. that's, um. I mean, I remember like uh, when I was in a band, bless me, I, I was excited to go up the M1. And uh, you know, once we got past Ooh. Watford, I go, oh, we're touring the north. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. But if your first stop is Singapore.
4: So, right. I'd sat in for um, Brian Edwards, incredible alto player. It was in the band before me, not long before I left university in Sheffield. And I thought, oh, that's a nice thing to ask. It's a one-off show. <laughs> but I really ought to get a job. So I was applying like,
1: <laughs> that old thing again.
4: Post, that old thing like money and food and shelter. <laughs> um, so I applied for lots of positions, research fellowships, part-time work, and I got all rejections. So some forty to fifty letters in the first six months since I left wow. the university, and
1: wow, that's harsh. No,
4: no replies. I'm sure it's even harsher today. Can you imagine graduating in these circumstances mm. when Gary called and said, "Hey, would you like to go to Singapore?" He could have said, it's for a burger and chips. And <laughs> I would have still said yes. <laughs> you know? It was like, you, you're going to fly me to the end of the earth to play in a country with an audience I've never met and you're going to pay me? Great. That's <laughs> Yep, yeah, sign me up.
1: Was that part of a, a longer tour? Were you away from home for a long time or was it like... No, it was
4: three or four days. Um, mm. Most of my touring has been like that, to be fair. Yeah. Um, I think we did a two-week stretch with Jazz Jamaica where we drove from north of France to southern Spain, a whole bunch of festival dates in a, in a tour van. A proper tour! Yeah, no, that's, but that,
1: that, that, that's uh, you know, you often get this sort of dream of, like, oh, we're we, going we to do an amazing tour across the States. You're going to be in a car in 110-degree heat travelling for <laughs> nine hours a day. It's not, it's not always going to be as good as you think it is.
4: <laughs> yeah. I a- remember, I mean, that tour was combustible for all sorts of things, reasons and you learn that as a <laughs> young musician how political and combustible musicians and artists can be but I remember a great mentor friend Cliff Bigger Morris Bigger saying to me music turns the mad sane and the sane mad Ugh. and it was really cryptic at the time but and as we started to tour and do these performances I saw exactly what he meant quite uh well-heeled buttoned up people were just jumping around the room (laughs) inspired (laughs) by the ska music and infectious dance beats and was,
0: Vice versa. was it quite like as a young man heading out on tour with all of those musicians i mean that's kind of like every young man's dream isn't it going off on this yeah. tour having all these because yeah. like i guess my, my reference point is um i uh, i'm always sort of dipping into um uh art blakey uh, uh, not art blakey um art pepper straight life and like the first part he's like a young man on tour and there's loads of drugs and women and you know yeah. debauched behavior going on guns and whatever Like how. D- don't break my heart, but like, how close is that to the <laughs> to the actual genuine jazz? <laughs> also, don't get yourself arrested.
4: <laughs> yeah, right. Don't snitch. Uh, yeah, right, I'm going to snitch on myself. But um, I'd say probably, and we have probably born in a, the wrong era. It's well, a shame. I Not enough like heroin. Back when heroin was
0: clean and sophisticated drug, exactly.
4: Back when heroin was clean. Not like, that I would it's know. All this dirty smack. That's the problem. The smack's just dirty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm out of my depth here. No, listen, <laughs> yeah. I,
1: I'm one to hark back to the rave days, but, you know, uh, I, I think that might be going a bit far. Yeah,
0: you're right, yeah. You're right. But, that, but still, it must have been, like, j- just uh, socially, I guess, it must have been such an amazing experience as a young man. I can only on imagine,
4: like yeah, went to Jamaica soon mm. after that as well, which was, which was amazing. That's even more like a holiday, because we got put up in, like, resorts for a week while oh we were there playing. Um, the only analogy would be young men going away to sea
2: mm. in the
4: 19th century or something. And <laughs> your prospects don't look incredible. And someone says, how'd you like to get on a ship and see the world and try and seduce young fillies? <laughs> <laughs> <But>
1: yeah, OK. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, um, you know I think I'm thinking specifically of Alan Weeks, an incredible guitarist, jazz musicians playing everywhere. You know, incredible lovers rock artists as well as his own music. And having figures like him around me to sort of guide me, to laugh at me in my precocious youth. <laughs> but you know, I did a gig with him in Finland just, like, just last year, and I think it's a tremendous privilege that I have as a musician to have those sorts of relationships where people are looking out for you, watching your successes and your failures and wanting the best for you. you know, that's something I, would, I would certainly certainly not, not take for granted. Mm.
0: Are, you, are you a mentor yourself to, to uh, other jazz musicians at the moment?
4: I'd like to think so. Um, <laughs> but you, know, you know, let me be candid, I think the term mentorship has been quite loaded as well. There's mm. a lot of people who make a career out of providing opportunities for young disadvantaged urban disaffected youth and you have to question their levels of sincerity when you look at the results Mm. or or the degree of longevity that these artists then have but I've been really lucky, uh, blessed to meet musicians at the beginning of their journeys and be evolving at the same time, like, you know, Shabaki would come round to my room and we'd shed for a few hours and then he'd steal all my CDs, which I still <laughs> want back. <laughs> well,
1: it's you so did this a all part. a favour by schooling him.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he schooled himself. Yeah. But, um, and me in the process. It's just great to have iron sharpened iron. Uh, yeah. So I think the mentorship happens officially and unofficially. So many cats. And this is a model, I guess, that tomorrow's warriors have really pioneered in this country. And when they ask me for information, I've been just happy to divulge or happy to provide opportunities for them mm. to perform, whether that's the fly of the show festival or the Black Peril most recently. Mm. You know, I was incredibly fortunate to know Eric Lewis and, and Greg Hutchinson, two prodigiously, virtuosically sick musicians. Mm. Um, and then also to provide a platform for friends that I've had for a long time, you know, Nick Jerds, Jay Phelps, Giacomo Smith, and a new generation of Tomorrow's Warriors. You know uh young musicians, some of them in into Os well as others not um who much like me, I guess are looking for platforms, spaces to create and to be validated as they go forward
1: so when you were um when you were out there uh having this first experience, i mean were you as a, as a twenty something kid, were you able to step back and watch and learn, or was it that you gradually became aware of the lessons that were being taught to you just by the attrition of uh, of being in a band and and working i'm especially interested in fact that with jazz quite often the the age range in bands is much bigger much more broad and so you get a a, a different type of wisdom in a jazz band you know with your yep. Your young, thrusting punk bands, they're always like, if once you're 18, 20, you're done, you know. But right. jazz allows you to keep going and pass on that wisdom. It's interesting like that.
4: Um, yeah, I don't think there's a point where you ever feel that you've learnt it, that you've got it. I think about meeting Sonny Rollins um, backstage before his concert at the Barbican. You know, Courtney Pine was there, introduced us. It was, it was amazing. But then he said, you know, the day before was his birthday, his 82nd birthday. And he'd wow. been practising for, I think, seven or eight hours, He said, Wow. And that's like, how you do Sonny it. And Sonny Rollins, like, surely you can't need to practise anymore. <laughs> You've played everything that's playable, ever. Um, the idea that he's still searching, still discovering things. In his it's idea, a lesson,
1: it's, that, isn't it? It's a lesson. It's
4: a hugely important mm-hmm. philosophical lesson. Um, and one that I'm trying to still imbibe today.
1: Do you think you'll uh, you'll still be blowing the horn at eighty two, eighty three? I hope
4: so. I, really <laughs> I hope, hope so, so too. You know, I want to be one of those guys, the um, Kornits. I want to be those guys who are still, you know, killing mm. in old age, still sounding great.
1: And yeah. Yeah. I, I, did you go to the the We Out Here festival last year? At, um, and where uh, I think Gary Bartz played, and he was eighty, eighty two, eighty three himself, oh, and he was doing yeah, a full yeah. live festival. With you know 40, 50,000 people and yeah. still killing it,
4: yeah, maybe. yeah. I mean, I wouldn't like to have to do it. <laughs> there, there have been those examples, it's like,
1: well, rent due for 92 million You still on. want a roof over your head?
4: <laughs> you need a tap dance, boy. I'm, I'm in a wheelchair, tap dance. Uh, so, no, I don't want to be in that situation, but certainly with the youthful spirit, mm. a youthful spirit, a youthful, playful spirit. And I hear, you know, even the Wayne Shorter isn't playing as much anymore playing at all that childlike energy childlike spirit should i've always thought of him as eternally
0: young So, it's, it's been such a pleasure eamon do you have anything to to um ask seeing as i dominated this entire interview with my
1: well because i always deal with the big issues i did i did mention it slightly sure. before we were recording but uh, I, I would like to just mention that uh, for the last 10 years i have had my breakfast on a saturday <laughs> morning staring up at swear kinch's picture on a on a chopper bike i think it is with a with a little alto in your hand yeah. okay. um taking way back when i've i've looked at that every week For ten years, and uh, it's very nice to speak to you uh, and actually, uh, you know, make a connection. So, thank you very much for coming on What Goes Around. Thank you, thank you. you. And if you're ever in the premises, I'll buy you breakfast. Oh,
4: thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll buy that picture once or twice. That must be weird. You been waiting for
0: someone to recognise you, or did? Yeah, no, but like
4: he's much thinner than
1: you. (laughs) Ouch! (laughs) Ouch! that can't be you. (音楽) ¶¶